Uh, please join me in our prayer for illumination. God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And our scripture lesson today comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 21 through 30. Hear now the word of the Lord. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. You can't go home. Oh, that's the name of the sermon. I'm so sorry. Thanks be to God for his word. That's, that's what Ruth told you. You can't go home. That's the... Uh... Thanks, Ruth. So how bad does a sermon have to be before someone gets thrown off a cliff? That's what I want to know. We're going to find out, right? <laughs> I remember one of the first sermons that I preached in my own home church in Sioux City, Iowa. In fact, it was the very first sermon that they had in the space that they were worshiping in at that time. Now, the church that my family goes to today is a new church, newer church anyway, started from a group of people that had moved over from the other Reformed church in town. And they were worshiping in the St. Mark Lutheran Church uh, in Sioux City, there on Glen Avenue. And there were about 250 worshipers that day. And the, the vice president of their board called me, I was in college at the time, and said, Chris, we're moving into this new space and we would like you to come and preach. And I said, okay, yeah, sounds great. Um, in those days, I still didn't know what I was getting myself into, and I was eager to preach any chance I got, whether it was in college or whether it was in a church. Um, there was a local uh, Native American mission that would have me come in and preach from time to time. All good times. I don't remember anything about that first sermon. But I do know that subsequent times that I've preached there for the good folks at Peace Reform Church, that I've never made anyone mad 
by what I've said. And I think there is a reason for that. And the reason is that no matter what you say to a friendly group of people, they will only hear it in the best of ways. Right? They remember the kid you were when you were growing up, and they're just so proud of what you're standing up and doing that they don't actually hear anything that you have to say. So when Jesus quotes the proverb that a prophet is never accepted in his hometown, that means one of two things. One, it means that no matter what you say, the people won't listen to you because they knew you from when you were growing up. Dave Ramsey calls that powdered butt syndrome, saying that basically if, if you know, you, you can't tell your parents what to do because they took care of you when you were a baby, and they're not going to accept you when you say challenging things to them. So one is that you get the negative reaction. The other is that you get the positive reaction. But again, I ask the question, what is so bad about Jesus' sermon that they rise up in anger and carry him to the brow of the hill on which the town is built and try to throw him off the cliff? Well, let's rewind to last Sunday. Jesus was in his home synagogue there, and he had been in that region already healing people and teaching. And so he comes in with this understanding that he is already gaining some fame. And so there's excitement around this, right? Here is this guy who is doing wonderful and wondrous things, and he's coming home. Imagine that some famous person were part of Abundant Life Reformed Church. They were famous for who knows what. You know, maybe they're a famous movie star, sports hero. You know, I mean, imagine, you know, Matt Weiss, his, his football career continued on and, and he went to the NFL and then he came back. We might think, wow. You know, here is a celebrity in our midst. Maybe he's going to give us a lot of money. Uh, maybe he is, you know, going to have a reporter with him and they're going to report. Like, who knows? Like, these, these delusions of grandeur start to pop up. And I can imagine that for the folks in the synagogue in Nazareth, that perhaps this is what they are thinking. And so Jesus stands up and he finds the place in the scroll in the prophet Isaiah where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, he hands it to the assistant, he sits down and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Yes. Yes, their wildest dreams are coming true. Here, a famous son of Nazareth coming and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor here in this place. 
Finally, finally something wonderful is happening. And because Jesus is from here, it must mean that these wonderful things are starting here. And wow, how privileged are we to have Jesus. This boy, oh, and by the way, we're all amazed, but isn't this Joseph's son? Not really sure how to read that. Do they think Joseph is good? Do they think he's bad? He's a carpenter. Is that a luxurious position there in Nazareth? Maybe. I mean, maybe they're saying, hmm. Like, he's saying that Scripture is fulfilled in him, but isn't that Joseph's son? But Jesus seems to see into their hearts by what he says next. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. So what did Jesus do in Capernaum? Well, the next part of this passage tells the story of what Jesus had done in Capernaum. He went and he drove out an evil spirit. And amazing things. He heals people. He does these wonderful miracles. And so he believes they are going to say to him, do here in your hometown what you have heard that you did, what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. We have sick people here. You could heal them. We have people who have evil spirits, unclean spirits. You could drive them out. I mean, you're from here. So shouldn't you do it here first? They're filled with expectation. They're filled with this sense of privilege. They are privileged to be where they are. And nothing quite bursts our bubbles like when our privileges and expectations are disappointed. And so Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian." well-known stories from the history of Israel that talk about the way that God's grace extends to those outside of Israel, which is not a new message. The way that the Israelites are supposed to treat and be with those outside, Gentiles, is well-established. There's a place in the temple in Jerusalem that is for the Gentiles. The assumption all along is that Gentiles are included in God's grace. So the problem here is not 
that Jesus is preaching about how God loves the Gentiles too, that wouldn't be an upsetting message. But what's upsetting to them is the insinuation that Jesus is not going to do any of those things there in that place. We raised you. We supported your father's business. We changed your diapers. We paid for you to go off to school. And this is how you repay us? By saying that all of these wonderful things you've done everywhere else, you're not going to do here. Really? And with that, they pick him up and they carry him to the brow of the hill on which the town is built and they go to throw him off a cliff. And how does Jesus respond when his own people reject him? How would you respond? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You've spoken a message, a true message that you believe to be true, and the people that you love and you trusted have picked you up and started to carry you off. Not in celebration, not Jesus sitting on the shoulders, you know, with a Gatorade bath. to the edge of town to throw you off a cliff. How do you respond? Well, here's what Jesus does. He like melts through them. It's like they can't touch him anymore. And he moves through them and he moves off to the next place. He doesn't kick the dust off of his sandals. He doesn't shake his fist at them and say, you good for nothings. He just quietly moves on to the next place. Which I think is a grace-filled response to these folks. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't say that he is going to deny them or deny that he ever knows them ever again. No. He just walks right through the crowd and went on his way. I think there are some things that we as the people of God can learn from this story. I think one of the first things that we can learn is about what privilege is. Privilege gets a lot of news these days usually accompanied by the word white. Heard no doubt about white privilege. It's a fairly controversial subject. When I was on the General Synod Council, we had um, some anti-racism training where we did an exercise where everyone stood up. We did this in seminary too, and Bob, you might've done this in New Brunswick as well, where everyone kind of stood on one side of the room. The facilitator uh, read off some statements. 
you know, I grew up in a two-parent family, um, you know, I went to college, you know, all these different statements, and if they were true, you took a step forward. And sometimes it got into some uncomfortable situations, like I've been stopped by police by just standing where I am, or various things like this. And what became apparent over the course of time is that all of the white folks in the room were standing on one side of the room and all the folks of color were on the other side. And women and men were displaced from each other. And when you get a sense of that in the room, it's a really powerful experience. And for all of us white-skinned folks, we had a choice to make in that, in that place. One of the choices would have been to make excuses or apologize for what we had been through, to feel a sense of guilt and shame. But the facilitator was quick to say, while all of those feelings and experiences are valid, instead, listen to the voice of those who are in a different part of the room from you. And there were some really powerful expressions of sharing in those kinds of situations. It would be a powerful experience for any group of people to undertake. Because regardless of who we are, regardless of our situation in life, we have experienced privilege in one way or another. In a predominantly Christian nation, Christians have privileges over those who are not Christians, although that's becoming less and less today. And as Christians, we maybe feel that change. Because anytime our privileges are challenged, we feel discomfort in that. Which is, I think, what the folks in Nazareth felt that day. They thought that they were privileged to have Jesus as part of their hometown. And when they realized that they weren't quite as privileged as they thought they were, then their response was in their discomfort to express anger at their situation. So I think that's one thing that perhaps we could learn from this passage to try to recognize the ways in which assumptions that we make about who we are as Christians or whichever socioeconomic classes we find ourselves in, to be cognizant of that and to listen to the voices of those who perhaps are not from our group. That's one thing that we might learn. I think another thing that we learn from this, though, is how we respond in situations of disagreement in situations where our voices are not heard, or in situations where we think that the message that we have is worthwhile and right, and yet no one is listening to what we have to say. And we have two very different responses here, right? One of them is a violent response. This person who has said things that we disagree with we are going to not only dispose of their message, but we're going to dispose of them as well. 
right off the cliff. And we find that in our society today, right? People that we grew up with, people that we know very well, that perhaps are in our own families. When they say and do things that we disagree with, we write them off. Perhaps we don't physically injure them, but we have the social equivalent of tossing them off a cliff. But then we have Jesus' response, which is perhaps to give them time. He walks through the crowd and goes on his way. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't cause evil spirits to go into them and for them to trample off the cliff and into the sea like he does to the pigs in a later chapter of this gospel. He doesn't harm them in any way. He doesn't curse them in any way. Instead, he quietly moves through the crowd and goes on his way. And I think there's something faithful about that response. It's hard to do. It's hard to feel ignored. It's hard to just move on without getting that parting blow. But according to Luke here, there's faithfulness in that response. Because perhaps Jesus gets an invitation to come back. Perhaps there's another opportunity, or perhaps Jesus' disciples will someday be present in the synagogue in Nazareth to tell the story about Jesus and about who he was and about who he is and about what he did for them even though they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Yes, sir? Why did they want to throw him off a cliff? That's a great question. I don't think we know the answer to that question. Honestly, the best we can do, the best we can say, is that Jesus challenged who they thought they were and who they thought he was. And so we answer that question for ourselves, I think. What will our response be? What is our faithful response as Christians to things that challenge us? To things that we've either never heard before or we've been taught to reject outright. As faithful Christians and as thoughtful Christians, my hope would be that we would stand with Jesus in this and learn from him that sometimes the best thing that you can do is just move along. Just move on. Not with violence, not with 
anger, not with hatred, but perhaps the prayer of blessing in our minds. I think what Jesus does is a word that we know as grace. And I think it's the same grace that God shows to us when we have angry outbursts, when we go astray from what we are called to be or called to do. The word is grace. A prophet is not accepted in his hometown. So if a son of the church here, a daughter of the church, stands before you to preach, regardless of what they say, don't throw them from the bell tower. Listen to what they have to say. Be happy and excited that God is working in their midst. And if they say something that's challenging, listen or just walk away that day. Come back the next Sunday, ready to listen for what God has to say that day. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for showing us in Jesus' deeds and actions what it is to be his faithful followers. And give us the grace, Lord, to extend a sense of understanding to those that perhaps we disagree with and help us to recognize those ways in which the assumptions that we make about what it is to be your people are perhaps misguided. Teach us a new way to live each day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able to stand, would you stand with me now as we affirm our faith, the words of the Apostles' Creed. People of God, what do we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.